In this conceptual model of multiplicity, it is particularly when we encounter deities drawn from the animal kingdom or from bimorphic human animal beings that I am compelled to ask just how is someone for whom this belief model makes sense perceiving the world? Someone who sees the world in this multifaceted, albeit often fragmented way in which there exist realities not visible to others who do not share the same conceptual model. Since my time on the reservation in Montana, anthropologist Rosalind Lapierre has produced a wonderful collection of stories and storytellers representing the supernatural world of the native Blackfeet people of which she herself is an enrolled member. Her collection is entitled Invisible Reality. She illustrates what she means by the invisible reality of the Blackfeet universe by recalling stories told by her grandmother and grandfather from their own direct experiences. One story accompanied her grandmother's account of riding her horse in their traditional homeland, the Badger Two Medicine area near Glacier National Park in Montana. There she would pick berries and sense what Lapeer calls the supernatural horses living in the small mountain lakes. Rosalind remembers her grandmother saying, these horses lived underwater, and they swam underwater between lakes. Some even swam under the mountains between lakes on the east and west sides. At times, humans could also interact with such transhuman beings. Her grandfather, Spotted Bear, was near a creek, and while stopping to water his horse, he saw a beaver and her children. Somehow he recognized immediately that these were unlike normal animal beavers. The mother beaver was standing on her hind legs like a human on the bank of the creek and singing a song. Her children were doing the same and they were dancing in the sand. In other stories, however, creatures of the invisible reality were not so benign. For Rosalind Lapierre, in the perception of old-timers like her grandparents, levels of reality were virtually reversed. The animals, rocks, trees, and other elements of our daily existence sat alongside the real world that was full of supernatural beings and animals, rocks, and trees. She says, the old-time Blackfeet lived in a multi-layered reality where the extraordinary experiences of the Blackfeet with the supernatural were interwoven with the natural. Early recorders of Blackfeet life, like Father Emile Legault, similarly found that essential to Blackfeet life was the belief that the visible was really only a manifestation of the invisible. In this almost Platonistic conceptualization, the invisible dimension was the real world, and the visible dimension was only a partial representation of that world. Without getting overly wrapped up in connotations of supernatural being taken to imply immaterial or non-physical reality, I think we can get a sense 
of the perceptual capabilities of a people who see reality as if at different wavelengths and frequencies than others. By analogy, it would be that some people could see parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that included infrared or ultraviolet light or x-rays, or who could actually see as well as hear radio waves. That is only a rough analogy, of course, because what we are talking about is native people who can see animals as capable of far more complex and meaningful behavior than do other people whose contact with animals is less frequent or only marginal. In my own case, I would put it that one is not speaking here of literally invisible reality, but rather of the ability to see ordinary invisible aspects of actual beings and their behavior through the visible. For the most part, the invisible are still actual animals. They are not phantoms. Although there are also, of course, stories about persistent post-mortem human beings who become visible under certain circumstances, and invisibility was a chosen attribute of certain well-articulated classical deities, the cap of Hades, of Perseus, Athena, Hermes, that turned the wearer invisible. To me, it has to do with the closeness one has with certain animals in the course of a life that is intimately proximate to them. Many feel this with their pets, animals who accompany humans nearly all the time, as have mine. But I also had a sense of it when I was only 11 or 12, and with our trusty basset hound, Hogan would hunt for pheasant in the great empty fields that surrounded the rural area in which we lived. The hunt was a question of coming to understand the physical world from the animal's view, coming to respect the animal in the very quest to take it, but becoming intimate with its moves, its strategies, its unpredictable behavior, and then not being shocked when a pheasant burst out of the brush with a loud squawk and took off before I could even get the old double-barrel 12-gauge Ithaca to my shoulder. But lest you think it is only through the hunt that the closeness of human and animal behavior is displayed, well, in the range from Wyoming to Idaho, male Colombian sharp-tailed grouse can be seen engaging in an elaborate courtship dance before their prospective females. They hold up their tails, lower their heads and spread their wings, then stamp their feet on the ground in various staccato rhythms. Observing this dance, Native American Indians have come to emulate grouse behavior. The Northern Tochone First Nation group of Yukon continue to perform a grouse dance today. When I speak of a close intimacy one has with certain animals, I mean quite literal closeness, especially for early human beings who lived a hand-in-glove proximity with many animals. Nothing illustrates that better than fossil records revealing the lives of primitive humans and animals together. Several years ago, along the edge of an ancient lake bed in White Sands, New Mexico, a paleontologist was following the fossilized tracks of a ground sloth. 
The sloth was a large Ice Age animal whose long curved claws forced it to waddle on the sides of its feet, so it made a crescent-shaped track. But the paleontologists also noticed other imprints that overlapped the tracks of the sloth, those of early humans. The overlapping tracks suggested a group of adults and children had deliberately stepped into the sloth prints. They were following the animal until a point where the sloth probably turned around to face them. These and other similar prints record the intimate interactions between humans and animals who shared the same habitat. The imprints could even reveal apparent feelings on the part of each. Curiosity, recklessness, surprise, fear, sometimes ending in rapid departure, sometimes in violence. If you really want to blow up the world of our ordinary day-to-day -day experience with bimorphic or hybrid beings, you could look at those pre-Buddhist transhuman folk entities from around 3rd century BCE, like Yaksas and Nagas and Guyakas and Bhutas and Gumhandas and Pasakas. Penta, stop! And Mahorgas and Raksas and Canaras. Okay, I'll stop. But this really, really diverse collection from Vedism and Brahmanism and folk cults with demons and heavenly creatures along with kingly beings, one scholar tries to lump them all together, calling them spirit deities. But we don't know if each individual group I just named refers to a consistent set of beings, let alone if the entire collection shares common characteristics ranked by attributes of personality or simply their order of creation. Their nature and beliefs about them were quite local, and they varied across regions, so you see how complex the world of trans-human beings can be. Anyway, maybe we should go on to the fifth area of multiplicity, the cultural function of various deities, and then come back and see how these folks fit into that. That's a good idea. There are many ways to look at social practices and institutionalized functions within a culture, but three stand out to me. First, etiology, attempting to answer why some social practice or cultural subgroup has come to exist. For the most part, I think the why may never really get answered in terms of its ultimate purpose, so you're then left with a more or less mythic account of how some social practice or institution came into being. Second, what is the importance or value that this function has in the life of the culture? And third, what skills or capabilities are required to maintain this function? Suppose we take the social function of leadership and look at the institution of kingship, say, as it existed for the ancient Canaanites. An explanation of why the need for leadership was answered in terms of there having to be a king, as opposed to some other form of cultural leadership, is not really given. But once existing, kingship was supported by the king's relationship with an even more powerful entity, 
a patron deity like El or Baal, who supported the king in a kind of cooperative relationship. Particular capabilities required to maintain the institution of kingship were depicted in visual representations. The limestone Balofudra bas-relief we talked about in the last episode shows the deity transferring to the king the ability to sustain agriculture, to feed the kingdom's people. Also conveyed was military power that, in a sense, was symbolically shared. The power of the king against the intrusion of foreign cultures, but also the power of the deity over competing gods. In the model of multiplicity, lines between religion and culture, sacred and secular, are difficult to draw, it seems. There appear deities for every aspect of family and work and social life. Take the very practical side of ordinary life. There often arises the need for people to have a way to make decisions, to determine some basis for choice. This includes, to the extent possible, expectations about what kind of future a given decision will bring forth. Thus, the social function to which such expectations may lead becomes that of a local predictor or diviner, one particularly skilled in interpreting signs from various pieces of material reality available that could be symbolically meaningful in delineating the content of the future. Now, the need to predict the future is most intense in the midst of some state already wrought with psychic difficulties or disease. Thus, it is not surprising that the Canaanite deity already associated with plague, disease, and war, Reshef, could be culturally commandeered to discern the outcome of such states plaguing society at the level of individual families or persons. Hence, a shaman or healer who calls upon Reshef to divine the future from observing such troubled material as malformed animal fetuses is bringing the invisible reality of the divine realm into the midst of the world of ordinary experience. Cultural institutions may express a people's relationship to the most basic necessities of their life. Animals hunted, food crops grown, to water itself. Now for the Iroquois, whose creation myth of the woman who fell from the sky we heard, such expression was part of their Chateko Shelha, or midwinter ceremony. This was celebrated five days after the new year moon in January. It was a time for renewing responsibilities for the coming year. Ashes from wood stoves were turned over with wooden paddles to symbolize replenishing Mother Earth. A group of women were formed for the Onihulu, or water drum dance. Today, Mohawk women from the Akwesasne Women's Singing Society can be heard drumming and singing while the splashing water of a stream courses by.
they are singing, we love the waters, all types of water. The water is precious. The Mohawk or people of the Flint are the easternmost nation within the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee Confederacy. This traditional singing group is made up of young women, mothers, aunties, grandmothers who work full time as teachers, social workers, students, and retirees. In the spirit of their traditional role, Kanti Wenahawi, the carriers of the words, they have embraced what they call a duty to help our language survive. We believe that if our language dies, so will we as a nation. Without our language, we will have no culture. So we proudly share our songs and teach children so that we may honor everything that is natural to us. Through our songs, we honor our mother, the earth, our grandmother, the moon, our grandparents from every generation, the teachers of the Mohawk language, the great law of peace, and more. You can also recall the Iroquois Sky Mother's left and right-handed twins. Another part of the midwinter ceremony is the Wahase, or thunder dance. This ceremony celebrates the return of Yothisoha, our grandfathers, and Latisayaka to Hesse, the thunderers who bring rains to replenish water life. During the time in their creation story, when the twins were struggling with each other, the thunderers came to drive many of the animals that the left-handed twin had created into the earth. Remember the left-handed twin creating animal life that was dangerous. That's what lightning is still doing. It is suppressing those ferocious animals that live all over earth. If the thunderers were to cease, these animals would emerge and cause great suffering. So when people hear these animals, they make offerings so the thunderers will continue their protection. Now the reason the thunderers are called grandfathers as well is that long ago, one thunder being married a human and had a boy child who today is an old man, a half human, half thunder being. When we remind ourselves of how the Iroquois twins were a construct to help create order and balance in society from two culturally inherent competing forces, dangerous aggressiveness versus a more passive purity in beauty, this leads us to a sixth dimension of multiplicity, how the conceptual model effectively creates a metaphor to establish order in the world. We have suggested that in early cultures, there was a different understanding of the world under the conceptual model of multiplicity than for many of us today, even though that model robustly continues in contemporary indigenous cultures and in polytheistic neo-pagan groups that thrive in Eastern Europe, Scandinavia, the rural British Isles, even here in the United States. This is a world that may be perceived as fragmented, to be sure, but it is also a far more dynamic world, a world of multiple forces, 
where human perceptions are not perceived as being controlled under immutable divine laws given from the divine mind of a singular creator, our perceptions are impinged upon by multiple forces in the natural world, some beneficent, some destructive, and each of these forces draws upon a human being's continual attention in order to successfully negotiate a path through life. When we struggle to understand the experience of human culture in which the conceptual model of multiplicity is the primary way of understanding reality, we may ask, well, then how can we internalize the claim that the world is a product of multiple forces, perceived often in fragments of experience? Well, one way may be to metaphorically apply a different picture of vision to general human experience, perhaps that of insects like ants, whose eyes are not like human eyes. Ants have compound eyes broken into an array of many units called omatidia. Ant vision occurs as if on a grid, like the hundreds of separate LEDs we now see on traffic lights. Each omatidium sees one particular point in space. The whole eye sees one image, but by focusing on different portions of it, as in a mosaic. Such construction makes ant eyes very good for detecting acute movement, even though in very low image resolution. The ant sees something move, but doesn't necessarily know what it is. So that is where another fragment of reality gets involved, scent. The biologist D.O. Wilson has observed ants marching along paths negotiating impediments, including dead ants. He has shown that the corpse of an ant emits oleic acid three days after it has died. Ants will pick up an ant with that smell and toss it on their midden, their outdoor garbage dump and graveyard. Or, as we've also said, we might try to imagine that human vision includes frequencies from other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum and that we struggle to integrate them into a coherent whole. But we're most interested in a sense of order or meaningfulness at the level of personal religion. And with most ancient cultures, Canaanite, for example, relatively little is directly known. However, in the Akhat story, we did see articulated a list of social duties of being a son. And this may represent some evidence of speculation about the afterlife by ordinary people. It's also possible that common people joined in song during public rituals. And scholars have pointed out that personal names were often theophoric. They contained a divine name attached to an epithet, such as apiraspu, meaning Reshef is my father. This would indicate that individuals saw themselves in a personal relationship to a particular deity. Also, common people could share with lords and kings the universal experience of death and mourning. Ugarit tablet KTU 
16 describes mourning practices of ordinary citizens for the king correct. It reads, like dogs we howl at your tomb, like whelps at the entrance to your burial chamber, yet, Father, how can you possibly die? Death brings both king and commoner alike in thinking about unanswerable questions about connections to one's ancestors and the extent to which the living bear their traits. Ancestors function as quasi-trans human beings that potentially impact our lives. I often think about my grandfather, whose intense moral rigidity may very well affect my own sense of being offended by callous selfishness. There is ordering going on over time over generations, and not all of it is under our control. In Canaanite religion, and as we will see in ancient Egypt, the gods have responsibility for tasks that keep the world going, keep the world ordered, as in the solar circuit of the daily course of the sun across heaven in the underworld in Egypt. This narrative of the sun god circling earth is reflected in the earthly sovereignty of Pharaoh. It was implied by some of the imagery in Canaanite artifacts as well that keeping order in the world could be a cooperative task. As a divine deputy on earth, the political decisions and actions of king or Pharaoh had consequences in preserving an inhabitable, safe, ordered world. The idea of a king or pharaoh linking the structure of a divine pantheon to ordinary human existence is one mechanism by which to understand the creation of an order of sorts in an oft-fragmented and chaotic existence. This is order defined by the tasks of the king and by extension people performing various social and economic functions that must be performed to keep things in order. But there is also another more nuanced sense in which order is shared between human and divine realms. At one level, the gods and goddesses were larger than life figures who traveled in giant steps and had apparent control over the earth and human destiny in it. But at another level, the gods and goddesses themselves embodied aspects of human experience that were beyond control and not understood. In this sense, the gods embodied paradoxes in their own personhood. They were storms that both produced rain to make crops grow, but aperiodically were destructive. They were the conflicting motives say, the preservation of a society over and against pure greed in military operations leading to unintended violence. They embodied the mystery of death. Order and control of the exigencies of life often went hand in hand, occurred together, so that one would be hard-pressed to determine whether what one experienced was order or chaos, except that the two occurring together came to make a kind of sense. The conjunction of order and disorder become meaningful. 
To illustrate that sense of order and chaos existing together, let's return to those pre-Buddhist entities Pentha mentioned earlier. Taken all together, this highly diverse collection of gods, godlets, and spirits present in the largely Hindu and folk religious world into which the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, was born, could and has been called a cacophony. Their images have recently been on display at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. One of the questions raised by images of these beings was their presence at the sites of recently uncovered early Buddhist monastic complexes in southern India, like at Fanahiri, the snake-hooded hill in the state of Telangana, and Kanaganahali on the Bhima River in Karnataka. Under the patronage of Satavahana and other kings whose courtiers and merchants were rich with trade in spices and ivory from Burma and Vietnam to the east, images found at these Buddhist monastic sites displayed a wild, crowded, cacophonous world so much in contrast with the austere personhood of philosophical Buddhism's meditative doctrine of not-self, anatta, that we discussed in episode five. Buddhist monks at these sites evidently appeared quite comfortable appropriating the cosmology of older folk religious cults that existed in the region before the Buddhist teachings arrived. This was a spiritually active world inhabited by entities like Yaksas and their consorts Yaksinis who lived in trees and stones and streams as hidden forces of nature and who, according to the Atanatya Sutta, would haunt the lonely and remote recesses of the forest where breezes from the pastures blow, hidden from men, who were these and other loosely connected beings? Yaksas were nature spirits, generally benevolent, but sometimes mischievous and sexually rapacious, even capable of murder. They were associated with wilderness water and trees of the forest. As attendants of Vaisravana, a beneficent deity who protected the righteous, Yaksas were believed by early Buddhist monks to be capable of either attacking or defending them. This led to the monks making them recipients of commensurate food and other offerings. Yaksas were part of a landscape filled with ghosts howling in the charnel grounds and dangerously seductive yaksinis hanging from tree branches. Along with yaksas came others, Nagas, bimorphic human serpent-headed beings who resided in the underworld, patala, in caverns or streams or the ocean. One Naga, wishing to become a monk, was given Buddha's explanation of how to be reborn, first as a human. Guyakas, like their Yaksas brethren, lived on hills and were sometimes seen in half-bird or half-horse forms who glowed in heaven but were demonic during war and otherwise existed as gnomes on earth. Bhutas were the ghosts of deceased persons, usually perturbed and restless, 
prevented from transmigration or from achieving nirvana. These creatures haunted cremation grounds, dilapidated buildings, royal mansions and forts, and were believed to shapeshift into animal forms. Portrayed as humans, their feet faced backwards, and they cast no shadows. Kumhandas were these dwarfish, pot-pelling beings who resembled gourds, sometimes with enormous testicles or horse heads. Pisakas were flesh-eating demons and manifestations of evil with bulging veins, protruding red eyes. In the Mahabharata, they were an original creation of the creator Brahma who could possess humans and alter their thoughts, cause insanity. Maharagas were huge subterranean serpents who rotated the earth, caused earthquakes when angry, but who also protected and upheld the Dharma, the cosmic moral law. Kimperusas, who were lion-headed tribal beings of ancient India, living in inaccessible reaches of the Himalayas and were visited by Arjuna in his conquest of northern kingdoms. Raksasas were Hindu malevolent beings who lived on earth, disrupting Vedic sacrifices and eating humans. But all was not evil and gore. Kinaras were bimorphic human bird critters associated with music and love and grace and beauty, and they watched over humans in times of danger. And the list goes on and on. The devotional conjunction of such a cacophony of divine and quasi-divine beings and philosophical Buddhism was something of which I had direct experience while in Vietnam. I had been teaching at the provincial college of Tianjiang and on a project helping to build a school in the jungle village of Tan Hiep in the Mekong Delta. My last evening there was spent with my college students at the festival of the full moon at an old Buddhist shua pagoda deep in the jungle. The following is excerpted from my journal. The evening became mystical as we neared the old lost pagoda. By 6.30, it was already night, the sky completely black. But the full moon shone brightly through the jungle palms. Hundreds of devotees were gathering, some stopping for religious artifacts sold by old women squatting along the path. Beautiful Swan took me by the arm and led me toward the Shua. Already we could see the flickering flames from votive fires inside and smell the incense rising from shrines depicting various strange deities and godlets along the path. Within the temple was a clamorous tempest of devotees. Born along with them, we passed from one Buddha shrine to another our smoldering incense held above the forehead, bowing three times quickly or slowly, synchronized with the heavy peal of gongs, then placing our incense in a brass urn on an altar surrounded by strange carvings, vignettes of snake god nagas with curved tails, statues of bird-headed people, the head of a deity with four faces, an ogress, 
a set of pictures of eight angels riding on animals, images not only of the Buddha in various contemplative poses, but the gods of agriculture, folktale creatures of forest and river, tigers, dragons, phoenixes amidst mosaics of jungle scenery. These were images similar to the sorts of yaksas and nagas and maharagas to which you referred, Penta. This was many years ago, still close enough to the time of the war. So back to the journal. We prayed for new friends, for bonds between the Vietnamese and ourselves, for family, for peace. The deepest interior of the temple was dark, but ablaze with flaming torches amongst the shrines, the walls ornate, covered with tiles images of strange-looking flying beings of every color, the air choked with the smoke of incense. A swirl of people stepped towards the altar to place their burning incense, then stepped backwards from one location to another in no obvious order. The innermost sanctuary housed the great Buddha seated on a lotus. Suan held me tightly as more and more people filled the schwa. Despite the moving throngs, our awareness was only of murmurings of prayer and the steady ring of gongs. Time flowed in a dimension from which it never seemed to advance. Students stopped to say they would miss the classes. They took pictures. Sparks of bright flashes punctuated the haze amidst the swirling crowd and the smoke of torch flames. Above, the silent moon continued to gaze down brilliantly through the jungle palms. And the warmth of the Mekong's harvest time, without its progress, time imitated the eternal. But soon a melancholy drew over us. We knew this was our last night in the Mekong River Delta together. Soon the turbulence of the crowd, the smoke, the flames, the images of strange gods and creatures surrounding the Buddha, the sweet touches of a dark-eyed beauty would be no more. Only a pale yellow moon would remain above the towering palms. Perhaps a wisp of mist rising above the steaming jungle, the sole reminder of the revels and prayers of that harvest night. That's where the journal stops. In that night, I had come to understand how the full-to-the-brim bedlam of multiple gods and godlets of multiplicity's folk religion could strangely and yet so easily coexist with the silent purity of the utter absence of all selfhood in the concentrated meditative vision of emptiness of the Buddha. In the captivity of that clatter and clamor they live together in their own unique but beautiful order.